Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. We welcome your questions and comments. As always, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So these are extraordinary times. And as a result, every once in a while, we may step outside of our stated subject focus of food plus drink plus culture and bring in someone who simply is an extraordinary individual. Our guest today is just that. I'm talking about world-renowned neurosurgeon, Dr. Keith Black. Dr. Black holds the positions of chair and professor, Cedars-Sinai Department of Neurosurgery, Ruth and Lawrence Harvey, Chair in Neuroscience, Director, Cedars-Sinai, Maxine Dunnett's Neurosurgical Institute. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, Chief Medical Correspondent for CNN, that TV personality we all love and recognize, said, and I quote, I often get asked who the best doctor is in the world for various ailments. Truth is, it's hard to question when it comes to brain tumors. However, the answer is pretty clear. Keith Black. He is the doctor people find when all the other doctors have given up. He is that guy, end quote. Dr. Black is among an elite group of neurosurgeons in the world who have performed more than 8,000 brain tumor operations. The precision of his surgical skill enables him to remove tumors that have often been considered inoperable. Dr. Black was featured in an episode of the PBS program, The New Explorers, entitled Outsmarting the Brain. Esquire magazine included him in its genius issue as one of the 21 most important people of the 21st century. He has been cited as an expert in reports about whether mobile phone use affects the incidence of brain tumors. Time Magazine featured Dr. Black on the cover of a special edition called Heroes of Medicine. Dr. Black is not satisfied to merely remove difficult brain tumors. His greater goal is to obliterate brain cancers and find cures for debilitating neurological disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. Under Dr. Black's leadership, the Maxine Dunnett's Neurosurgical Institute and the Department of Neurosurgery at Cedars-Sinai has made many significant scientific and clinical achievements, including recognition as one of U.S. News and World Report's top centers for neurology and neurosurgery in the nation. Dr. Black has published hundreds of scientific articles and has presented his findings at over 500 national and international meetings. He's won multiple awards, been on multiple magazine covers, and has received many prestigious acknowledgments. In other words, the soft-spoken brother and fellow Virgo is major. <laughs> Dr. Black, welcome to Corner Table. Thank you uh, for taking the time to talk to us this morning. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the discussion, Brad. So, uh, Dr. Black, I kick things off with what I call short order questions. Just a couple of things to get us rolling. So I'll start with those. What are you listening to or reading these days? What's in your earbuds, man? You know, I've, I've enjoyed a few books uh, recently. Uh, Sapiens, uh, I do Sapiens. Uh, it's been a really good one. It sort of explores the uh, development of our species and it gives a lot of insight in, into the behavior, I think, of, of 
of humans, actually, as, as we relate to other, other mammals on the planet. Great book. Any music? Uh, you know, I'm fairly eclectic uh, now. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, the music has evolved to the point, you know, that AI can predict what you like to listen to. <laughs> so, you know, given my, my uh, like of, you know, from rap to jazz to classical, you know, it's sort of an interesting mix that I'm listening to these days. Yeah. All about algorithms, right? Right. Yeah. Tell me the one thing everyone should eliminate from their diet. So it's a it's a tough and, and it's a broad question, Brad. You know, if I had to say one thing uh, from the diet, uh, it's uh, uh, processed, purified sugar. You, you know, trying to assume more complex carbohydrates and to eliminate simple sugars is probably one of the best things that we can do in our diet. It not only sort of helps control your weight, Mm -hmm. but it lowers your risk of of developing diabetes, but it's also important for brain health. Um, We we know that brain cells uh, are very dependent on glucose for its energy source and the relationship between the survival of our brain cells and insulin and and, and glucose is very complex but there is a thing that um, may actually contribute to alzheimer's and dementia as we age and that is the ability of our brain cells not to react correctly to insulin and uh, consuming simple you know sugars may actually you know uh, contribute to that so if i had to pick one thing i would say avoid simple sugars Right. So my love of cookies and and ice cream is not doing me any favors. Well, look, you know, the reality is that uh, like, you know, our mothers used to say, do everything in moderation. So I would never say never, uh, but, you know, do it in moderation occasionally, you know, not every day. L.A. restaurant you frequent most often and why? So I I like... uh, Probably the, the restaurant that I enjoy most is Nobu Malibu. You know, it's hard to beat the ambiance, enjoying great food, uh, you, you know, listening and watching, you know, the waves crashing from the ocean. And also, you know, fish, you know, particularly, you know, the type of uh, fish that they serve, you know, is, is, a, is a healthy, you know, consumption. So I would have to say that's one of my favorite restaurants. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree to see the the level of business that they do there and the quality is maintained and the ocean is a backdrop. And if you're there at the right time of day, the sun setting is pretty tough to beat (laughs) until you get the check. (laughs) You just want to make sure that you're not not ordering off the wrong side of the menu at Nobu. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. All right. Best live musical performance that you've ever seen. I would have to say Earth, Wind, and Fire when I was uh, a senior in high school uh, on the uh, Knowles uh, uh, in Ohio watching them perform. Just spectacular. Uh, A close second to that has to be watching Michael Jackson perform. Absolutely gifted, genius performer. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. We're about the same age. I think we're one year apart. And so we're talking 70s and the theatrics that Earth, Wind and Fire would put on during the concert were just unmatched in those days. Right. I mean, now you you, you see it, uh, you know, a lot. But then, you know, it it was very cutting edge and forward. That's right. That's right. Okay, complete this sentence for me, Dr. Black. I have little to no patience for ignorance. 
uh, and and particularly, you know, in, in these uh, very difficult times, people that disbelieve in science, I think, can have a, a very detrimental and harmful impact on our society and, and the planet in general. You know, not following science when it comes to how we deal with, with this pandemic and COVID, how we approach climate change and global warming. I think is, is something that is going to potentially be catastrophic for us. I shudder a little bit when I hear you say that, because uh, it just brings home the seriousness of it. And we're going to touch on a couple of those subjects. So we will come back to that. Favorite childhood food memory? <laughs> well, look, it's going to probably uh, in some ways contradict what I just said. about <laughs> but, you know, but in moderation. For, for the sake of honesty, I would have to say, you know, the German chocolate cakes that my mother used to make, you know, I mean, that's just uh, comfort food. But, you know, it's probably not something that I would consume a lot of now. <laughs> well, the memory of it is uh, it'll have to serve you then. Dr. Black, where are you looking forward to traveling to? I know you're a bit of an explorer. Uh, yeah, you know, look, you know, the, the, the pandemic has really inhibit the ability for us to, to really travel, particularly uh, internationally. You know, I love the water, Brad, as you know, and, you know, I, I miss the Amalfi Coast, you know, in those areas. And if I had to, to sort of pick a place where I would like to get back to, it would like to be to get back to the Amalfi Coast. Mm-hmm. Okay, last one of these. So who past or present, someone who's still among us or someone who's who's moved on, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? I would have to say if I could pick anyone, uh, it would have to be uh, Martin Luther King. I, I did not have the blessings of, of meeting him at any point, you know, when he was alive. But listening to his um, speeches, reading his writings, the insight that he had and just approaching so many different topics uh, from civil rights to um, uh, uh, racial equity uh, to uh, war and inhumanity across the planet. Brilliant thinker, insightful, understood how to motivate and move society in a way to make change. Absolutely. Well said. And and I'm sure he would be so pleased to know that uh, that you exist, Dr. Black. All right. So let's jump in here. Um, some crazy times, man. The last you know year and a half, 18 months. I mean, you alluded to it. You know, you brought up the pandemic. But before we get into anything, how are you? How are you doing? I'm blessed, uh, Brad. Look, you know, family, healthy, doing well. Found out uh, last weekend my uh, daughter is engaged to a, a wonderful young man. Uh, so, you know, good news there. Uh, work is going well, you know, despite the pandemic. Research is going well. So um, I'm happy. That's fantastic. Congratulations on your daughter's engagement, too. So, um, Dr. Black, of course, you know, I'd like to talk about the brain uh, and the incredible work that you and your, your team are doing at Cedars. But before I do, I was hoping to get some insights from your purview on this virus and the pandemic. So how does this end or is this something that we're just going to have to live with in various forms indefinitely? So, Brad, if, if anybody tells you that, you know, they know the answer to that question, they're, they're not telling the, you know, the truth. We don't know. So that's the that's the scientific truth. Uh, we know that there are, you know, these global pandemics, you know, a pandemic like this, you know, happens about every hundred years. You know, the last one was the Spanish flu. 
1902. Uh, we uh, anticipated another pandemic like this occurring. You know, the, the government had contingency plans for it. Um, so it's not something that was unexpected, right? So every once in a while, uh, a virus will mutate that humans just have not been exposed to. So our immune system just doesn't have immunity to it. Um, this virus has the ability to mutate into different forms. And we're dealing with that now with this new Delta variant. Um, but the one thing that I will say is that on the positive side, unlike the last pandemic, you know, 100 years ago, if you look at the bright side, you know, we had a global pandemic. And within a year, we had multiple vaccines against the virus. That's a true scientific achievement. Uh, so that's the positive side. Uh, we had the ability, at least in the United States, to produce enough vaccine doses to get the population vaccinated if they wanted to. The unfortunate part of it is that we need to vaccinate the entire planet to control the pandemic because we live in a global society. And how this virus will play out over the next weeks, months, years, I think in large part will depend on uh, whether we get um, new uh, variants uh, from the virus mutating and what those variants will look like. Are they going to be more contagious? Are they going to be more deadly? Are they going to be resistant to the vaccine? So all of those questions, we just don't know at this point. And I think, you know, the, the answer is going to be dependent on, on that. Uh, this may be a virus that we just have to live with, right? If it keeps mutating, if, it, if, if, if uh, reservoirs of the virus is able to hide in different places within you know, human society or the human body, it can continue to, to bother us for years to come. Or it could be like H1N1 and just go away. I, I mm -hmm. think, you know, that question is, is really the $64 question that we all <laughs> know the answer to. Nobody knows. Dr. Buck, you, you kind of answered this question, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on this. As someone who works on developing vaccines and, you know, they can take decades to develop. And, and a lot of the apprehension around the vaccines that got developed for COVID were, was the thinking that, oh, they just started this and, and, you know, how can they come up with a vaccine so quickly? But I'm sure as a researcher, scientist, you, you know, you can elaborate a little bit on the fact that this just didn't start. Uh, the work on these vaccines just didn't start. But still, they, they, they got accelerated along. And, and the fact that we are able to put them in our arms so quickly is still a miracle, is it not? It is, right. I mean, you, you know, look, so, you know, everyone was concerned because, uh, you know, this vaccine, unlike a traditional vaccine, which uses kind of an attenuated or virus that, you know, cannot have any deadly effects or harmful effects on the body. This vaccine is an RNA vaccine, or at least two of the vaccines, so the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are RNA vaccines. So, you know, RNA is, 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 is a genetic material that codes for protein. And it's really the protein that our immune systems have been activated uh, to develop an immune response against the virus. Uh, so it's really just a more advanced way and actually more precise way of delivering the body uh, a vaccine to generate an immune response. Uh, RNA vaccines have been in, 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 in research for, for years. Uh, they've been demonstrated, at least in other research trials, to be safe. Um, the speed in which this vaccine was developed uh, is a combination of 
you know, doing the research, making sure that the vaccine was safe, um, getting approval of the vaccine at, on a conditional basis, right? So it was given a conditional approval without full approval because of the dire consequence, mm -hmm. right, of not getting the vaccine to patients early. Uh, and looking at the safety profile on the tens of thousands of patients that have been treated in the trials and the FDA experts determining that it was safe, but also accelerating the production process. So normally you would have the approval take place and then it would take another year or so to generate the production process. But doing those in parallel allow pharmaceutical companies to get the vaccine out probably a year earlier than they normally would have. Uh, and as a consequence of that, you know, I think was able to save, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. Sure. And, you know, Dr. Black, not, you know, certainly not intended to get uh, the, this program. You know, we don't try to get clickbait and I'm not trying to get a, a quote that can be, you know, taken out of context in any way. But just generally speaking, how frustrating is it for you, someone at your level in the medical profession and a researcher who develops vaccines, to hear this counter false narrative about, you know, from people who have no idea what they're talking about and, and actually persuading people not to get it with false information? How frustrating is that for you? Uh, it's, I would I would not use the word, Brad, frustrating. I would use the word scary, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're in a different era in the world and society now than we've ever been in, I think, before. And it's just not how we deal with this pandemic, but how we deal with everything. So look, when you and I were growing up and we would listen to Walter Cronkite in the news and he would say, that's the way it was. You had three or four news channels the news you got at least had some vetting, right, of uh, whether that information was correct or not correct. With uh, cable news coming on, you know, we lost that vetting process. And now with social media, anybody can come out with anything. With, and, and it doesn't have to have any basis whatsoever. But if you can convince someone who's just going to listen to the soundbite or the headline, uh, then you can convince, you know, huge portions of the population into believing whatever you want them to believe. So we're seeing this basically, you know, play itself out in how you can convince large portions of the population and people that would ultimately pay the price of life because they believe this disinformation uh, for it in this pandemic. But what about the next crisis that we face, right? What about all the other issues that we face? And so we've lost the ability to convey information that has been vetted by science and, and, and proven to have, you know, some truth to now vast portions of the population believing whatever someone can basically put on a social media platform. And to me, you know, that's not frustrating. That's scary. Right. Yeah. How do we deal with anything going forward? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, you brought this up earlier, but, you know, the existential crisis of global warming. Right. I mean, if we if we can't agree on the science relative to that, that's at our own peril as a planet. Right. I mean, you know, we're essentially burning our own house down. And look, you know, when it comes to global warming, most people think, oh, you know, we have to deal with this 10 years, 20 years down the road. But 
you know, some of the scientific data that's coming out will suggest that we don't have that much time, right? What we're seeing, you know, with uh, the changes that are occurring in our jet, you know, stream and, you know, the effect of, you know, this kind of positive feedback loop, uh, you know, can be very, very devastating in a much shorter period of time to the planet. Yeah, it's been a scary summer. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Black, I wanted to dive briefly into your background a little bit. I heard you speaking in an interview about how much you enjoy your work. You were actually talking to a class of medical students about the importance of matching your passion with your talent and said that you recognized you had a passion for science and that you were, quote, good at it. <laughs> um, at 17, you won a national science competition. So when did you realize that something that that science was something that you had an aptitude for? Uh, for as young as I can remember. I mean, you know, just my early memories as a child, you know, running, you know, in the yard and so forth was just a curiosity for how life worked. Right. I mean, you know. Just understanding anything I could about nature, about science, about life. And that was always, you know, something that I was just fascinated by. So, I mean, you know, my earliest memories, Brad, were really, I think, leaning me very early, you know, mm-hmm. towards, you know, understanding life, understanding nature, um, you know, really that scientific process. Sure. Um, you know, the, the some folks would say you're a natural, you know, but it, it always kind of bugs me when certain, you know, like athletes get uh, and, and too often it's athletes of color who get talked about as being, quote, naturally gifted as if they, that person didn't or doesn't have to work hard to achieve at a very high level. And your case, clearly you're gifted. I mean, you're brilliant. But I would imagine, Dr. Black, that the work that you had to put in to landing where you have at the very top of your profession entailed a lot of hard work. You earned both your undergraduate degree and your medical degree in six years, which is amazing. Um, I've had the good fortune of hanging out with you a few times. You're a quick laugh. You like to sail and throw on a little Miles Davis kind of blue, a seemingly normal cat, you know, on the surface. But uh, what kind of commitment and focus did achieving so much so fast require of you as a young person? And was your social life just non-existent for a period? (laughs) No, I you know, it was it was fun. Um, And uh, my social life was very balanced. Uh, You know, the difference and why I say, you know, one of the keys to success is finding what you love what you're passionate about and matching that with what you're good at means essentially that, you know, like Mac and Blackwell, you got to put in that 10,000 hours more or less, you know, to really perfect your art. But the difference is, you know, for me, uh, you know, when I was up at one, two o'clock in the morning, you know, doing a research experiment or trying to understand something about, you know, the human brain or human anatomy, it wasn't work, Brad. It was fun, right? I mean, I enjoyed it. I mean, that's what I would, you know, if somebody said, okay, now you, you're done with work, go do something you like to do. That's what I would do, right? And when, when that is the case, then put it in, you know, those hours and that work and that time doesn't become work. It becomes mm-hmm. fun. And that's what I mean when I say the magic really occurs when you can combine what you love to do with what you're good at. Right. So, you know, um, you know, to go back to an athletic, uh, you know, analogy, 
I'm, I'm sure, you know, Kobe, when he was, you know, in the gym shooting baskets, it wasn't work for him. I mean, you know, you have to have that passion or Tiger Woods or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. Yeah. Um, now, you know, I may love to play golf, but I'm not gifted at golf, so I could never be Tiger, right? But so, but if you can find, and, and what I tell um, uh, uh, young individuals that are sort of asking for career advice, you know, if you can combine, right, what you enjoy with what you're good at and make a career out of it, you never have to work in your life, right? So I was lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones because I knew that I loved science and I didn't mind working at it and I just happened to be good at it and I could be successful. The disconnect comes when you have someone that says, I want to do X and they don't have a skill. (laughs) I love that you don't have a skill. So, you know, I think, you know, the first step is trying to match the two. And, And when you can match those two things and they align, that's when the magic starts to happen. Yeah, you know, Dr. Black, I, I, you often hear, especially at uh, commencement uh, addresses where students are urged to find their passion, right? But the other part of that equation is just as important to match it with your talent, right? Because your yeah. passion can lead yeah. you down a lot of roads, right? That you have no business on. Yeah, you can still have a passion, but, you know, it's like... May not be that good at it. You may not make a career out of it. You know, you know, one of our good friends. You know, we can watch. You know, him on the big screen. You know, Denzel Washington. I mean, you know, he loves. You know, the art of acting, right? I mean, he goes and he does Shakespeare plays, right? I mean, and Broadway plays just to perfect it, and he doesn't need to do that, right, for money. Right. He does it because he loves it. And that's what makes him so good. You can just look at example after example. And when you see that, you know, then you see, you know, people enjoying what they do and being really successful at it. So, you know, there are a lot of things that that go into making a successful life and a successful career. But, you know, getting those two things aligned, I think, is 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 important and and one of the things that if, if it can happen, I mean, I see I see individuals even late in life and, and career and, you know, grad school is trying to figure out, well, you know, I don't quite know what I like yet. And, you know, you try to sit down with them and figure that out because that's key. Well said. Um, so, Dr. Black, let's let's turn to um, the incredible work that uh, you and your team are doing at Cedars. And um, I first want to get a little uh, or offer from you, actually, your words, a little general perspective on just how complex the brain is. So I, I heard you say this recently and it, and I, it really kind of stopped me in my tracks and I had to process it. But you say, quote, the human brain is made up of 100 billion brain cells with over 100 trillion connections, more computing power than any supercomputer we could ever imagine. So my question is, when when it said that we only use 10 percent of our brain's capacity, what is the other 90 percent doing when we're not using it? And will it ever be possible to access more than than 10 percent if that's true? Yeah. So let me first say that, um, you know, part of what we don't know is how much of our brains we're really using. Right. We don't know what that other part that we're you know, are not necessarily, or people say that we're not necessarily using, uh, is doing. Um, But, you know, if you can imagine the complexity of the brain and the interactions and the communication that's going back in those 100 trillion connections, I mean, that's just incredible. So 
you know, you can remove, you know, 60% of the brain and still have a person function, uh, you know, to everyone around them, essentially normal. And that's pretty amazing. But, you know, those areas are still doing something. So one of the things that we know is that nature is very efficient. Nature doesn't do anything for no purpose. So, you know, whether those areas are critical for creativity and, and, and you know, doing those extraordinary things that we as humans can sometimes do, we're just beginning to understand that process, right? So if you look at someone like Albert Einstein, who can come up with theories that it takes other scientists, you know, 10 or 20 years later to actually prove that shows the power of the human brain, right? Mm -hmm. Our ability to create, our ability to imagine things that is sometimes unimaginable is really the potential of the brain to harness uh, an incredible amount of processing, right? And, And intellectual capability. So I think... And again, you know, with the caveat that people that predict the future live in small houses, I think we're really just at the verge of harnessing, you know, the the potential and power of the human mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Incredible capacity. Uh, I'm always amazed at how much we don't know and how beautiful and magical, you know, this, this three and a half pounds that actually makes up the very essence of our memories, our creativity, um, our feelings of passion and hate and love actually is. Dr. Black, I know folks come to you from all over the world um, who have been told, you know, in some cases they have an in- inoperable tumor and you're their last hope. But I also would imagine that occasionally you get someone in who you have to deliver, you know, very difficult news to them or and to their family. So... Uh, you know, to evaluate, you know, a patient's situation and look at their scan and say, uh, you know, there's nothing else, uh, at least surgical or in terms of other treatments that, you know, may be helpful to that patient. I think the role that I have and the role of any physician would have is to help that patient, their family and their loved ones navigate through the difficult process that they're going to have for the rest of whatever journey they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do it in a very compassionate way, you know, to do it in a way that you would want, you know, one of your family members to go through that process with. So again, you know, what I find is that people are truly um, able to deal with very difficult situations, but they need to have the information um, and sort of the right path to deal with that. If I know that we've exhausted every option we have for a patient, it's no point in saying, oh, you know, there's something else that we can do and guide them down their own path or leave them hanging where they're going to go to Mexico and get some kind of treatment that, you know, it's going to cost them tens of thousands of dollars and not be effective. But to say, okay, look, here's the journey. Here's what to expect. Here's the process. You know, here's the good. Here's the bad. Here's some things that you can do to, you know, get the most quality and meaning out of whatever time you have left with your family and loved ones, right? And so I think even though I may have nothing surgical or medical to offer, there's still a lot of things that you can do to help that patient and that family. Sure. And I'm sure those assurances in those moments and that clear-headed 
um, you know, guidance is is most appreciated. Dr. Black, I, I read a, and I'll quote, you know, something here that, that you said, quote, nothing more. There is nothing more rewarding than waking up in the morning and knowing that that day you have the opportunity to save someone's life. And then on healing, you said there is something very spiritual about healing, about helping someone that's sick and trying to make them whole. So science and spirituality are often thought to oppose one another. Yet here um, you are at the forefront of science and speak in terms of a spiritual experience. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we're not just atoms and, and molecules, right? And so, you know, there there is an art to healing and there's an art to medicine. You know, when you touch a patient, you know, when you put your hands on a patient, when you look in their eyes and, and, and you make that human connection and give that patient, you know, hope and confidence, that conveys um, information to the patient that affects their disease process. No question about it, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have hope, uh, your your immune system is going to be less effective in fighting that tumor. And I've seen um, patients that are surrounded by love and, and hope and compassion and have hope themselves that that hope and compassion has helped them incredibly through cancers that you would have thought they could have never survived. So that, that's an important component that I would hope, you know, that physicians don't forget. And, you know, it's okay to be spiritual, Brad. It's okay, you know, to not just think of everything scientifically. The reality is, is that, look, you know, I always say, if, if you want to understand an artist, you study their art, right? If you want to understand God, if you are religious, then the best thing to study is human nature because nature is God's art. So if you look at the human brain and the complexity of it, it actually should bring you closer to being more spiritual, not farther away. It's no way that you can, you know, ponder the universe or look inside, you know, the human brain, I believe, and not feel a spiritual sense uh, somehow in the wonder and the magic um, in, in, in really sort of the, the spectacular occurrence of all of that, right? So I think that they go hand in hand. And I actually think that science ultimately, one day, if we don't have so much disinformation in social media, will actually make the world, I think, more spiritual. Mm -hmm. Dr. Black, there's so much humility um, in what you just said. And that segues nicely into another quote um, I want to read of yours. There is immediate gratification when a patient comes to you with an extremely complicated brain tumor and you're able to perform on them successfully and successfully restore function and send them home in two to three days, which is yeah. incredible. You allow yourself to enjoy that for a few minutes, but then you realize you have another four patients you need to go and do exactly the same thing for the next day. So, Dr. Black, that's that's really heavy duty. And I want to pivot here for a moment because the life and death pressure is a part of your your daily job. And I just want to ask you about balance. And, you know, you've said learn to keep your balance, learn to keep your body in balance, your friends and loved ones in balance and keep interesting friends. They make you better. Um, you can't possibly stay in that state of 
that life or death pressure moment. So how do you achieve that balance on a day-to-day basis? Is it meditation, prayer, exercise, all of the above? On a daily basis, it's probably a combination of, you know, uh, exercise and, and meditation. But also, you know, you do get drained, Brad. I mean, honestly, I mean, when, when you when you see your patients and you're trying to heal your patients, you give a little bit of your of your spirit to each of those patients. And ultimately, you know, you get uh, drained from that and you have to rejuvenate. You know, my rejuvenation is the water. You know, I, I, I get out and go sailing or go scuba diving or do something, but you can feel it when it's when, when it's not there anymore and you have to rejuvenate it so that you can come back and be 100% for your patients. But everybody can, you know, find, you know, that balance of how to rejuvenate themselves, whether it's, you know, hiking out and, you know, some great, you know, outdoor trail or whatever that is, or listening to jazz or doing something. But yeah, you want to keep yourself spiritually well and mentally well uh, and balanced. Absolutely. And the other point of that is it's very gratifying, you know, if you can really make a difference for uh, someone, you know, and you know, bring back quality of their life and give them more, you know, quality and great life with their family and their loved ones. You know, you don't want to think of yourself as being, oh, look at me. I'm Look how great I am. Because the one thing that scares me most uh, in a surgeon is arrogance, right? There's a difference between confidence and arrogance, right? Confidence is that, you know, I've really prepared for this operation. I'm going to do the best I can. Arrogance is thinking, oh, you know, look at me. I can do anything. And the surgeons that I see that can be technically very good that hurt their patients are the ones that get that arrogance. And that's why I think, look, I mean, I feel great for a minute or two. I mean, it's good to go ahead and, and do that. But, you know, look, being humble and knowing that, you know, Hopefully the next case will go just as well, but the next case can throw something at you that you better be prepared for. I mean, just keeps it, you know, in reality. Dr. Black, living so close to the line of life and death, does that give you a heightened sense of um, the need to live each day to its fullest? Do you do you embrace that more because of what you do for work? Oh, uh, yeah. So, that that Brad is is thank you for that. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, when when I wrote my book, uh, Brain Surgeon, part of the reason that I wrote the book is that you know I would see patients that had malignant brain cancer, you know, with a prognosis of a year or two, right? And you would think that if somebody told you you have a year to live, you're going to go out and get the American Express card and travel around the world and just mm-hmm. do what you want to do. That's not what people do, right? What they do is that they spend time with their children, with their spouse, with their loved one. They have meaningful conversations about things that they want to really talk about and convey to their kids. You know, you spend quality time. You do things that are meaningful, and um, my patients have taught me that you can live a lifetime, you know, in a year or two or three. Mm. And a lot of times I look at people and, you know, we're doing things that just don't have meaning. So what I learn and what I try to do is to always try to value every day uh, for how precious that day is. 
and, you know, to take time and, you know, whatever expression you like, you know, sit back, smell the roses, you know, do things that are meaningful, you know, spend that meaningful time. You know, that's the lesson. I want to come back to uh, something that you also said about friendship. And, um, you know, as, as you know, we get older, I, you know, I'll, I'll personalize this self-relate to, you know, I, I, anything that comes up where I'm reading something about longevity, you know, my I'll gravitate to an article about that. But friendship has become, you know, something that, you know, the need to maintain your close relationships and talk to the people that you're close to often and laugh and, and you know, have and really trust and value those relationships. And, and you allude to that. But speaking of close friends, I know that the Pauletta and Denzel Washington um, have, you know, been very involved with you in scholarship programs and providing scholarships for students. And just talk a little bit, Dr. Black, if you would, about the relationship with those two. They're, they're really incredible people. And I know, um, you know, very dear to you. So I just wanted to see if you could uh, share a little on that. Yeah, look, uh, two incredible uh, individuals and, and, you know, Pauletta, um, you know, I think uh, is you know, the model, right, for how to raise incredible kids, you, you know, uh, even though growing up in Hollywood, you, you know, children, you know, you, you worry can go either way. But, you know, the fact that, you know, she's there, she was there, you know, cooking for the kids, you know, having dinner with the family, you know, um, making sure that, you, you know, she was there for them truly as, as a mother. Um, you can see the impact on how incredible, you know, all of their kids just turn out to be. And giving, you know, when you think about them as a couple, both Denzel and Pauletta, you know, not just what they've done for the Brain Trust, which is a group that raised funds for research, you know, at Cedar sinai for our research, but helping, you know, bring in other scholars, you know, that ultimately will bring more diversity, uh, you know, to African-Americans in healthcare and in science, but all the other things that they give to from Boys Club to other sort of charitable organizations that they never talk about, right? Quietly, right, yeah. And they're not looking for any recognition or anything. I mean, you know, that just speaks to the character, you know, that the two of them are, right? And so um, I don't think too many people saw it, but I think Denzel, I saw uh, on YouTube or something recently, he was driving down the street and saw this homeless guy walking across the street and he just kind of stopped, you know, and went and walked him across and make sure he was okay. That's the kind of individuals that these people are. They're, they're not, I mean, they're, they're, they're very different than what the public might perceive, extremely giving and caring and wanting to really make a difference in the world. Well, I'm grateful that, that through them I've gotten to know you. So um, certainly the, the relationship with the Washingtons just pays endless dividends, we'll say, <laughs> that, uh, that we cherish. So, Dr. Black, let's turn to um, the incredible and groundbreaking advancements you and your team at Cedars are making in treating the brain. Again, quoting you, keynote uh, address you made to some uh, medical students, you said, quote, I can think of no creative or intellectual pursuit that's more rewarding than trying to develop a treatment that can improve human life and human suffering. The drive of the physician, scientist, researcher in you pushes beyond the recognized limitations of existing treatments for which there is currently no cure and tells you we can do better. You talk about the practice, practice, and this exploration, this research, part of what you do as art, 
in a certain way. There's a canvas there and you're having to draw from both your, your memory and your experience of what you know, but it's a blank canvas, right? It, it, it has yet to be painted on and you have to take that brush and paint these strokes that become a vaccine in some cases. Can you just dive into that and unpack what that kind of critical thinking entails and what, what that is like? I compare it you know, science and, and art in, in a very similar way, you, you know, like, you know, art is, is a discipline that's practiced with passion and science is a passion that's practiced with discipline, right? Mm-hmm. So to be a really good scientist, right, the difference between being an okay scientist and being a great scientist that comes up with discovery is the ability to see the world differently than anyone else, right? So when an artist paints a canvas, they're seeing what nobody else sees and then they paint it. And then, oh yeah, yeah, look at that, right? (laughs) So with the scientists, when you have those aha moments, you're seeing something that nobody else has seen, right? Else they would have already discovered it. So if you're looking at mold on a bread and the only thing you see is mold on a bread, let's cut it out. That's not going to make a discovery of penicillin, right? If you see mold on the bread and you say, wow, there's no microorganisms growing around that mold, then what is that? You know, let's isolate that and make penicillin. That's the discovery. It's been able to see things differently than, than no other scientist or no one else has seen before. So that is that creativity. That's that playfulness. That's just staying, you know, in that sort of I'm not rigid. I just see the world however I see it very much like an artist or a jazz musician will sort of look at music or look at the canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the way that I see research, right? I, I, I try to stay completely open and I'm looking for things that everyone else hasn't seen before. So, you know, we recently made uh, an observation that we can identify the hallmark of Alzheimer's by looking through the eye, like you go to an ophthalmologist and you can see the telltale hallmark of Alzheimer's, the amyloid plaque, you know, in the back of the eye, which is the retina. Now, scientists had overlooked that for decades. But when I think, well, wait a minute, the retina is really an outgrowth of the brain. Why shouldn't it have it? And maybe we can look, you know, with the retinal scan when you go and get your eye exam and see it. And let's go find it. And we look and we find it. You know, that's the discovery. And, you know, those kind of things, I think is what separates the top sort of one or two percent of scientists from all of the other 95 percent of the scientists that are just repeating and validating the discovery that other scientists have already made. Well, what you're talking about, I, I believe, if I'm, you know, interpreting this correctly, is the difference between memory and conceptualization, right? Because it's one thing to memorize this is what you do when you see this and then you do that. It's another thing to see that same thing and then say, well, now what, you know, beyond what I remember from what I've been trained. Is that is that accurate? And maybe even one step beyond that, Brad, right, is to look at something. And even though you've been trained to look at it and say, wait a minute, right, you know, that's X. Because that's what, you know, I know that it is, right, from all of my experiences in life. But what if you look at it and say, well, maybe that's not X, right? That's X minus four. That's the difference. And, you know, the world may tell you when you make that statement, right, wait a minute, this is X minus four. I say, oh, you're crazy, right? That No, it's not X minus four. And that cannot happen. And it's not like that. And then if you are trained in the scientific 
discipline, you can then go and design experiments to prove it and then show the rest of the world, yeah, it really is X minus four. Guys, like, look at it, right? That's, think about Einstein when he came up with relativity, right? Well, no, that's not possible. There's no, we're talking about this time-space continue crazy, right? And even though he saw it and told the world, they still said you're crazy. But it's that ability, like, to see what no one else sees. And then the scientific discipline allows you to, the, the tools to go out and prove it and convince the rest of the world that it's right. Let them do the experiments and say, oh, wait a minute, that's right. And then you slowly bring the rest of the world around to seeing the world the way that you saw it when no one else saw it that way. That's the art of discovery. Yes, thank you. And, and Dr. Black, I know, you know, I mean, you, you are a very humble guy. You're not a dancing in the end zone type of uh, celebrator. But when you've worked so hard and for so long on the development of something and then you have a breakthrough, does that moment for you last, the moment of feeling some gratification, does that moment last a little bit longer for you than, say, knowing that you've got patients lined up the next day? I mean, do you allow yourself a little bit more of a longer lunch at Malibu or, or something? Yeah, because look, when you can help a patient, you're helping one patient. If you make an advance that can treat Alzheimer's, you're affecting millions of patients. Now, the reality is that process of science takes a lot longer, right? Because mm -hmm. you may have the concept, but then you have to spend years proving the concept because all your colleagues are going to say, no, that, that's wrong, right? So the initial reaction after you made a discovery is for everyone else to say, that's not right. Then you have to go and prove it. And then once you prove it, which may take years, you have to get them to believe it, right? Because you have to still go out and give the talks at the scientific meeting and convince them and argue with them to believe it. You know, the funny third part of it, the last part, is that once they believe it, they say, oh, yeah, I knew that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us something yeah. we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, man. That's great. So, Dr. Black, let's turn to the vaccine, these, this therapeutic vaccine that you and your team are working on uh, for brain cancer. And I believe that I read that um, a patient who might have lived a year and a half from the time of diagnosis now is living potentially up to 10 years and the vaccine has moved to 120 medical centers around the world and is in a phase three trial. So when, you know, I think of a vaccine, like in, as is the case with COVID, right? I think of something that you take to prevent you from right. getting something, but is the difference here that this is a therapeutic vaccine? So it's also treatment or just just explain it a little I, I'm, i'll mess it up so just tell us what you got there so look it's, it's it's pretty straightforward a vaccine is something that teaches your immune system to fight a bacteria or a virus typically right but it mm -hmm. can also use a vaccine to fight cancer so you know we know now that um you know we have vaccines that can try to you know prevent some types of cancer right, uh, in terms of cervical, you know, dysplasia and cancer in, in women, you know, because it's caused by a, basically a virus that can, you know, lead to that cancer. But also, anytime we develop a cancer, our immune system is also trying to fight that cancer and eradicate it. So we may actually develop more cancers than we know during our lifetime, but our immune system has recognized that that you know, that those clumps of cells are abnormal and not part of us and can eradicate that. And we never knew that we've had that cancer. In order for brain cancer to really 
grow in the brain, one of the things that it does is that it tries to hide from the immune system so that the immune system can never see it or recognize it. And so if we do surgery or give radiation or chemotherapy, you know, that can work to some extent. But you also need the body's own immune system to also weigh in in that fight. You know, they're like the special ops that go in and do these special missions to, to, you know, to kill the enemy tumor cells to make a real difference in the survival of, of the patient. So the vaccine that we've developed is for patients that already have a diagnosis, but it's to make their immune system more robust and more active in being able to identify any tumor cells that may remain and generate killer immune cells that can go into the brain, find those cancer cells, kill them, and eradicate them. And, uh, you know, that's a very, very promising area now, you know, not just in brain cancer treatment, but, you know, for a whole variety of cancers, you know, over the last 10 years now. Uh, even though we started this research on brain cancers before it was really popular, of activating the immune system with a number of different drugs and vaccines and therapeutics to help in the fight against cancer. Dr. Black, I also read that in in brain tissue that cancerous tissue is indistinguishable from healthy tissue and that snake venom is something that has that you use to to highlight the, the different tissues. How did that happen? Yeah, so, you know, the, the challenge that we have in neurosurgery, which is one of the things that makes, you know, removing a brain tumor, you know, difficult, is that, you know, the tumor can look exactly like normal brain. And, you know, the brain is not the liver. You cannot just go out and take out a whole load, you know, of the brain. So, you know, you have eloquent areas that are critical for language, for vision, for memory. So, you know, you have a very, very fine margin you know, in which, you know, you're able to separate the tumor from the normal tissue. Mm-hmm. And looking at it under the surgical microscope, it can look absolutely identical. It turns out that scorpion venom, uh, the, the chlorotoxin in the venom, has a very unique property in that it tends to only bind to cancer cells and it doesn't bind to normal cells. So we took some of this chlorotoxin, tagged it to a fluorescent molecule that fluoresces under special light and then you can inject that in the patient and then it only goes to the tumor cell and when we use the special camera that we develop that we can integrate into the microscope now the tumor cells fluoresce and we can see the the fluorescent cells and better identify exactly what's tumor versus what's normal make you know the removal safer and and, uh, more precise Wow. Given given the complexity of what you just described, I should be able to get that roasted chicken to your table in a, in a decent amount of time. <laughs> I'll never look at that challenge quite, quite the same way. Any improvements, Dr. Black, in preventing or treating stroke victims? Yeah. So, you know, that's a very exciting area because, you know, now with all the wearables that we have, you know, and artificial intelligence, and information, I think one of the real opportunities we have is to basically predict when a patient is about to have a stroke, alert that patient and their physician, you know, to hopefully say, okay, now you're about to have a stroke, you know, do X, Y, Z, or come into the emergency room for a treatment to prevent you from having a stroke. That's the best opportunity. The second best thing is if we can get that patient into a stroke center early, right, that has the capability, you know, our ability to, you know, either dissolve, you know, those clots that's blocking blood flow to the brain or actually 
putting in a catheter through the arteries to evacuate that clot has, has really allowed some amazing uh, recoveries from stroke that we couldn't have done, you know, a few years ago. So those areas are advancing very, very rapidly, you know, and one of the things that I'm really proud of, of what we've been able to do at Cedars-Sinai is that we have the lowest mortality rate, the lowest death rate of any hospital in the country that reports this data. So out of 2,300 hospitals at Cedars, we have the lowest mortality rate from uh, ischemic stroke in the country, right? So it's putting those teams, putting those advances in place to really help patients. The other area that I'm very excited about is a huge challenge, and that's Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to be the the tsunami that really affects the population as we age because it's it's a disease of aging. You know, we all live longer, and you talked about, Brad, longevity. But by the time we get 65 or older, one in eight of us will have Alzheimer's or some type of dementia. By the time we get 85 or older, that number goes up to 47%. So I'm planning to definitely get into my 90s. So, you know, that's a worry, right? Um, So, you know, we have made tremendous advances, I think, in lifestyle and what can make a difference in slowing down the progression or decreasing the risk of Alzheimer's. But some of the medical advances uh, to identify it early and potentially to treat it, uh, I'm very, very excited about. Uh, and so that, I think, is one advance, I think, in terms of brain research that can just have a tremendous impact. Man, that's exciting. That's really, really exciting. So just a couple of more things before uh, before we let you go, Dr. Black. I just had a couple of more questions I wanted to get your take on. So you said um, over the last 114 years, life expectancy has increased. Given the kinds of, you know, artificial intelligence and folks like you out there working hard to develop tools that are going to allow us to treat disease and predict disease. Do you see the um, life expectancy cycle really um, expanding and and folks living longer uh, sooner? I do. And I think the statistic is that over the last 114 years, Brad, life expectancy has increased 40 years. That's really the amazing piece of data, right? So, you know, look, you know, if, if you go back, you know, a few hundred years ago, life expectancy was in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Global life expectancy of about 100 years ago, not in the U.S., but globally, you know, was still, you know, in, you know, the 40s, right? 30s and 40s. So with the medical advances that we've been able to make, lifestyle advances, sanitation, you know, life expectancy has increased tremendously, you know, during that time frame. So, Currently, you know, life expectancy is in the high 70s. It's taken a little bit of a statistical dip with COVID, but with, I think, lifestyle medical advances now, a child that's born today has a one out of three chance of living to 100. So uh, that's really incredible, right? Mm-hmm. And we're learning more about blue zones and things that promote longevity uh, almost on a, on a monthly basis. But going back to the statistics that we talked about just previously, our our bodies are designed to outlast the brain. So if you don't want to, you know, get to 90 and, and have dementia. So I think one of the things that we're going to have to solve is Alzheimer's, right, and dementia, because that's going to affect a huge portion of that aging population. One of the things that we know is that 
Alzheimer's actually develops about 20 years before one becomes symptomatic. So you're actually developing disease. It's like pre-diabetes, you know, before you actually get, you know, end-stage retinic, you know, kidney failure, 20 years before you, you actually know that you have the disease. If you can identify that early, you know, you can, you know, do lifestyle modifications. And so that's one of the things that I'm excited about, about, about our ability to identify the hallmark of Alzheimer's decades before you become symptomatic with a simple eye test or a blood test. The things that people can do include eating a, a healthy diet, mm-hmm. exercise, sleep, uh, moderating you know, stress in life, social networks, uh, keeping the brain engaged in novel activity. Those are all critical things. But also, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the potential treatments along the horizon. So, you know, we have some very, very exciting breakthroughs uh, that we've made in our lab and, and at least preclinical models in reversing Alzheimer's disease. So I'm, I'm very, very uh, hopeful and optimistic that, you know, soon, you know, we're going to find some effective treatments for it. That, that's exciting, too. So, Dr. Black, just quickly, and I know you've done a lot of research on this. Any correlation between brain tumors and cell phone use? So, you know, the, the, the data is not conclusive. We know that there have been a lot of studies about the use of cell phones and brain cancer. And those studies divide into sort of two different conclusions. One group of patients say that there's no correlation, and then there's another group of papers that say there is a correlation. The group of papers that say that there is no correlation um, have done very, very short-term studies. You know, they look at patients after a year of exposure with very low levels of using the cell phone. The person uses a cell phone for an hour, a month, or something, which is well below what most people use a cell phone for. The papers that show a correlation have looked at the use of cell phones over 10 or more years and, you know, using the cell phone more closely to the time that a person will normally use a cell phone. And so those studies do show a correlation. Um, So we know, just like with lung cancer, right, if you start smoking a cigarette or cigarettes at 15, you don't develop lung cancer at 20. You develop lung cancer at 40 or 50. So it takes decades of exposure to increase the risk. But I do think there is a potential risk if you hold the cell phone close to the brain and close to the ear. And my advice is that since we don't yet conclusively know the answer, use a cell phone safely, right? You cannot survive now without using a cell phone. But if you, you know, don't put the phone directly to your ear, use a, a earpiece or a text or use a speaker. Uh, the microwave radiation that the brain gets, if it's very close, can be potentially harmful and my advice is just use it safely. Wise words. All right. Well, lastly, and maybe this is uh, a little bit more dipping into your spiritual side, sir. Do you believe that there is such a thing as an out-of-body experience? You know, we've all seen those, um, or maybe not everyone, but I've seen programs where people describe looking down at themselves on an operating table. Do you have any view on that, Dr. Black? So let me ask you, Brad, do you mean just uh, an out-of-body experience, like a near-death experience or a regular out-of-body experience? Uh, Both. I I didn't know they were two different things, but either one or both. Yeah. So look, I personally have had an out-of-body experience. At at one point when I was really focused on trying to understand consciousness in relationship to the whole brain-mind relationship, I uh, would meditate a lot. 
um, in medical school. Wasn't doing any drugs or uh, alcohol, but I remember after a session of meditation, walking down the hall and actually having an out-of-body experience where I, I was looking down at myself and was up at the ceiling. And, uh, you know, I kind of heard a communication that, look, you know, if you want to understand consciousness, go through the ceiling. But if you go through, there's no need to come back, right? And I'm in my 20s and I'm thinking, I'm only 20 years old. I like to hang out, you know, here a little longer. So I came back. So I, I, I had an experience, an out-of-body experience, you know, at, at a point in life when I was really meditating a lot. So, yeah, I, I do know that uh, you can put yourself where you can actually have those experiences. And I've heard a lot of times from patients that I trust and believe where they've had cardiac arrest or been at a state where their heart has stopped for a while where they all describe very similar experiences. And I'm sure you've read about it and I've heard about it where, you know, they see someone or talking to someone or they see a light. The question is, right, the ultimate question is, what is that, right? Is that just a phenomenon that the brain creates, like a dreamlike state? Or is it an actual spiritual you know, experience somehow. And I just don't think right now we have the tools to know the answer to that. But I remain open to, to either or even other possibilities. Yeah, that's that's a great answer. And I think you kind of took care of my, my last question, but it was going to be just, you know, what do you think happens when we die? Is it lights out? Is it over? Is there no consciousness? Is there no other realm that uh, a part of us drifts off to? You know, look, so I've, we all think about this a lot, right? Why are we here? What is life? What does it mean? Here's where I bottom out on this. Nobody knows. If anybody tells you that they know, I don't believe them, right? Unless I could see someone that was dead and they've come back alive and they say, oh, yeah, this is what really happens, right? But, you know, if you are near dead and your brain is still functioning, I mean, who knows, right? So that could be anything. My answer is that I know that we all have a burning desire to know. The basic nature of, of being human and conscious is that we want to know why we're here, why we're created. That's why we have religion. That's what science is trying to answer. What we don't know, and sometimes we just ha have to accept the fact that we don't know, right? And that's okay. We could all have our speculations. Um, from everything I know personally about science, about the way that life works, Brad, about the way that the brain works, about astrophysics and, and how we believe the universe came to existence. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that it all just happened by chance. So you have to remain open that there is something greater and that there is a greater reason why all of this has occurred and we're here and I'm sitting here talking to you this morning. But I also believe that we have to accept that maybe we just don't know the answer, right? Maybe we can work towards the answer, but we have to accept the fact and be okay with the fact that we just don't know yet. But all of it is possible. Well, we will leave it right there. Dr. Keith Black, I really, I want to thank you, man, for the work that you do, you know, that benefits all of us. And, uh, you know, you just, you're an incredible guy and it's a pleasure to know you. And uh, just thank you so much, man, for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you, Brad. I miss you. I, I look forward to seeing you when you're, when you're back in LA. See you soon, for sure. Thank right. you, sir. Yep. Bye-bye. 
So welcome, everybody, to this segment of our program called How We Move with Ambassador Shabazz. Well, we are moving through some serious realms today. Dr. Keith Black, boy, oh boy, what a journey. Oh, my God. You know, and it's been over a decade since he and I have uh, broken bread or spent any direct time. And he's exactly how I recall when he landed and arrived in Los Angeles. His word is what you believe. I mean, he speaks from a place that enables you to know he's queried that himself and he wouldn't share or impart the information um, if he didn't have a belief system that he was conveying in your best interest, even. Mm -hmm. I mean, and this chat at the uh, corner table was something that made me say, I think we separate ourselves from the scientists, from the doctors. I mean, and I think more of us need to have tutorials and sit downs and chats and powwows so that the exchange of this kind of communique is shared amongst many, because some of us don't have the benefit of research and study, mm. but we have the experience and an existence in ex that we can actually impart on one another and listen to your conversation together. And we get to see and hear the man that he is, the, the boy that he was, the curious one that he was. And and his dedication to just uh, the, the health of the brain, mm -hmm. but not just the brain as a matter or as an organ, but the being and yeah. listening to those two come together. Because you and I talked about it. You know, it's it's for me, the question is, what part is the brain? What part is the mind? Or what part do we have control over? What part do we not? And, you know, it's like even the resilience of the brain, but the power of the mind. I mean, what's the line of distinction or the will or the conviction or the belief systems? Uh, where does something like PTSD go and bury itself? And where does foresight and intuition and, for, you know, people who can see and sense ahead, is that in the brain? Where is that centered? You know, we think it's the mind, but is the mind different from it? So I know it becomes semantical, you know, as we explore this, the 10% usage versus the 90% not. It actually gave me an exhale. So we don't know everything, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of us that come into a space sensing what we believe, though it hasn't been founded or affirmed yet, means that we don't have to discount the value of other thought processes, other other ways of existence. And so in this conversation, you brought out the actual science of things. I mean, when I was a kid in high school, we studied three parts to the brain, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the medulla, period, right? Maybe the stem, right? You know, but over the last 40, 100 years since I was in high school, we've had so much more study and research. So when I start to think about the brain I, in my own family or loved ones, there's various traumas that we've experienced in and around us. And it includes dementia, Alzheimer's and tumors and meningitis and epilepsy and Parkinson's and being on the spectrum. That's all the brain, too. Mm -hmm. And yet many of those people with those so-called ailments still function. So if a thought, a feeling, a sense, it's the will, you know, you see someone saying, I am going to walk again. Where does that come from in that brain? You know, and, um, you know, more recently I was asked about mental health, a lot of retreats after last year, there's like a, people are have an exhale, a half exhale, because it seems like some of it is ended but then they're still holding on to the, you know, still gritting their teeth at night and they still haven't really let it all go and how to put together some retreats specifically around mental health. So I have kind of renamed it social health, right? 
and well-being, right? Because there's not where Dr. Black is surrounded when it comes to actual tumors and cancers and the like, but just one's whole sense of who I am in the world. How do I walk in the world? How do we work that muscle so that we're able to discern between the instinct of being ill and the will to find joy and Mm -hmm. just that because we can't change real life, but how do we handle it? How do we handle it? So I I love this conversation. He touched on, you know, what you just mentioned, too, when he talked about, you know, patients who have loving, supportive families yeah. around right. them and their ability to heal at a different rate than, you know, someone who's who's struggling alone or who has a less optimistic uh, outlook. So clearly, you know, mental well-being plays into your physical brain health at some level. That's right. And the emotion, where does, so we associate the emotion with the heart, but how, what, how is that translated to the brain? Mm-hmm. Because even I know of people who had Alzheimer's did not directly recognize the person anymore, but recognize the sentiment, knew that didn't know the name, didn't really know the face, but could feel the thing and know that that person was in their best. It's amazing to be around that. Or for me to sit bedside with quite a number of people with dementia, and instead of having them try to remember everything, a hundred memories, they have four. And I would just dive into the little, you know, boxes of the four. And I would just sort of give volume to that as opposed to bringing them back someplace else. And again, that joy of, of they could feel it when they're, when they're going. But right now, when he talked about passion and, and um, dedication, and he's right where in his wheelhouse, that's why we're the beneficiaries of Dr. Keith Black, because yeah. he's, he's right where he feels he flourishes best. It's like the, it's, it's his passion that we benefit from. The science and the talent comes at some point as well. Absolutely. And uh, Ambassador Chabelle, I want to acknowledge the the work that you do that you don't often speak about. And that is the the bedside care, you know, that you have offered to individuals with Parkinson's and, and various ailments. And, you know, the delivery of wellness for you comes in many different forms, uh, but is a constant. Sometimes it's phone calls and conversations. Other times it's actual bedside and taking care of people who can't bathe themselves. You, yes. you go that deep. So, so um, I feel that connection between Dr. Black and his uh, desire to uh, to extend life for, for folks and your desire to comfort. I think there's a correlation. Well, you know, we often when we have family members that are ailing, we start mourning in advance of their departure. And we really have to step into the space where we are valuing the quality of life as they're living it at that moment. And it's hard on us, notwithstanding you know, I was there bedside with my mom and I couldn't more. I, I knew she could feel me. Mm-hmm. So I had to step into a different space. Right. And that's the same with anyone. They can feel we want to remove fear. We want to get to a place. We want the euphoria, the joy, the what he was sharing. And so I can step out of body in a sense and go right to where that truth is. And I, but I also have to take care of myself in that process. That's why I realized I'm really very porous when it comes to the realization of those sensibilities. And, but I also love the truth of it. I love being part of that. It's a gift in for me and being part of the difference that it could make for the other persons and having been bedside with people who've actually made their transitions. And I learned later that family members have, have said what that 
time in. I don't get to repeat that because you realize that's not even the me of me, that's spirit, God, something else, right? And that in that moment, it's because of the way I care that I transmit that a million fold, you know? So with that, we're going to be literally putting delegations abroad just because of how people are feeling December, January, and March. And so as people listen to this particular talk, I would, if I can invite them to tune in and or ask, you know, the corner table talk and or find me on LinkedIn at how we move around the world and back and just ask me to, or, uh, you know, click you in so that we can really move around and make sure that there are books, experiences, retreats, gatherings about emotional healing, you know, um, because that can reduce the migraine or the depression or the sadness or the despondency or the pause or going through the motions. How many times are we at work, but you're just going through the motions? We want to give meaning to life, right? On that note, how we move. Ambassador Shabazz, thank you so much for those insights and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, associate producer Ariel Mancibo, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast where you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.